Well, just want to again express my appreciation to the church uh, uh, on behalf of my family uh, and for many of you, uh, just in your kind words, your words of con- uh, condolence and your cards and your gifts just have been uh, overwhelming to us, and we really thank you, thank you uh, just for your love towards us. Uh, just really thankful for the church, and not just for how you ministered to me, but I see even yesterday uh, just a great demonstration of how the church ministers to one another. We, our Candies ministry had a, a Bible conference here. We actually brought out a, uh, one, of the, one of the professors from the Master's College, and they came out... <clears throat> And just preached a whole day on the theme of uh, the uh, from Philippians two, <coughs> Christ's uh, obedience to the Father and his his humility, his his, uh, his emptying of himself. Uh, <coughs> but it was just so neat. I expected to come in and see our candies, brothers, sisters, kind of running around doing stuff. But I, I came in and I saw our a lot of good number of our English ministry folks. Many of you came out and just helping here. I uh, just really thank God for you. Thank God for your love and your ministry uh, on behalf of Christ to the whole body and just. Uh, just assisting in, in various ways. I was just really encouraged by that. Uh, and so I just wanted to just say, uh, praise God for how the body of Christ works. Yeah, well, <clears throat> if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, chapter 12, verse 9 and 19. Again, I, I didn't get a chance to personally greet our guests and visitors with us. And I just want to, again, welcome those of you that are with us, uh, whether you're family visiting or whether you, you heard Pastor Alton, you thought maybe he'd be preaching today. Uh, well, uh, he's not. Come next week, though. He'll preach next week. Uh, please pray for, continue to pray for Pastor Alton and Carissa as they, they're candidating. They're candidating at a church down the peninsula. And so, Lord willing, uh, that Lord may, would lead them uh, as he wills to uh, the church down there. So uh, just continue to uphold them in your prayers. Uh, all right. The passage today is John chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. It is one of uh, the passages in the, in the Gospels. Uh, detailing the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. John chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. We read here in the Word of God. <clears throat> the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he, that is Jesus, was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this picture into the life of Jesus and his ministry on behalf of the elect. Father, we thank you 
that we can open up your word and see our Savior. Lord, we pray that your spirit would open our eyes, our minds, our ears to hear your word now. Speak to us from your word. Show us Christ. Show us the truth of Christ that we might grasp, know, and receive him. Thank you, Father, for this particular season of the year where we particularly remember the death and the resurrection of our Savior for the the sins of the world. (coughs) We thank you, Father, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today is Palm Sunday, and we find Palm Sunday as a as unique Sunday in the calendar of the of the of the church life. Not just this church, but every church uh, or probably around the world would will commemorate Palm Sunday. Some will actually have palms in the front of their church uh, because it's it's such a significant day, and it's significant not to the church, but it was significant to the gospel writers as well. When you think about all the events of Jesus' life and ministry, when you kind of look at all of them, outside of Christ's betrayal, outside of Christ's crucifixion, only two events in his life and ministry are recorded in every one of the four Gospels. Only two. The first is the feeding of the 5,000. When Jesus broke a few pieces of bread and fish and fed over 5,000 people that had come as a sign that he is the bread of life. Secondly, though, is this event that we find here in our passage today, the triumphal entry of Christ. The gospel writers found this event significant because the triumphal entry marked the beginning of Jesus' passion. It marked the beginning of his entrance into Jerusalem, Jerusalem willingly to suffer and die for the sins of the world. The triumphal entry also was a public demonstration of who he was. That he was the long-awaited Messiah, the one through which to whom all the scriptures pointed to. However, in the Gospel of John, John's account of the triumphal entry differs a little bit from the other accounts. They all basically speak to Jesus' triumphal entry, his coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, and and to the praise of uh, and to the adoration of many people. But John, particularly in Basically, in consistency with his, the theme of his book, he does something that's, at best, only, he's, he describes something, he describes this event in such a way that conveys a truth that's only implied by the others. You see, that though there is an immense popularity with Jesus, John wants us to understand that Jesus was largely misunderstood. That the people did not grasp who Jesus was, although Jesus was very popular. You see, many sought Jesus in that day, but few did not grasp the truth of who Jesus was. The same thing happens in our days. There are many people who would name the name of Jesus. You would ask them, you go places in our country, and everybody you ask down the street, you say, are you a follower of Jesus? They say, yes, I am. Not here in San Francisco. Okay, that's not going to happen. There are some places in our country, there are some countries in our world, you ask people, are they a Christian? They will all say, yes, I'm a Christian. And though many will <clears throat> look, uh, will claim the name of Jesus Christ, professing faith in him, but they will, but yet in reality, just like the crowds 
back then, they failed to recognize Jesus for who he is. They followed Jesus for a perception of him rather than the reality of him. They followed him to save them from many things except to save them from sin. You see, to know about Jesus, but to know not Jesus, is a tragedy. And we here, who come in every week, gather each week to speak about Jesus, to hear about Jesus, to sing about Jesus, you know, it would be a travesty, a tragedy of the greatest, uh, greatest heights for us to be able to say all these things, do all these things, be about Jesus, but never know Jesus personally as our Savior and Lord, never having recognized the truth of who he is and the truth and the significance for what that means about who we are and what we need to do, and that is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, this is a common theme in John's gospel. We see this in John chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. John chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus said, or John wrote, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. This is a beautiful truth. Jesus came into the world. When Jesus came in the world, he didn't just come and enlighten just the Christians. He didn't just come and enlighten some of the people, just the Jewish people. Jesus came, when Jesus came, he came and brought the true light. He is the true light. And he shined in such a way that every man is enlightened. Everyone has truth shining upon them, whether they grasp it or not. Verse 10. But note, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. John tells us that Jesus was the creator. He made the world, and he entered into the world. In fact, as creator, his fingerprints are on every single molecule of this universe. Jesus as creator. Everyone, in even mankind, all of mankind knows, but just looking at creation, that there is a God. And Jesus is our creator God. And though he made the world, he came to the world, the world did not know him. They didn't recognize him. They didn't see, that's our creator. That's the son of God. That's the one who we ought to worship and give thanks to. What's more, verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. John goes even further. It's not just the world didn't recognize him, but his own people. That is the chosen nation of Israel, the Jewish people. God's particularly chosen, the descendants of Abraham, who through whom God would then bless the nations of the world. God, Jesus came to his own, and those who were his own, those who were basically looking for him, they were looking for the Messiah, even. They didn't receive him when he came. They rejected him. The world, Israel, they neither knew him nor received him, though he was right in front of them. As we come to our triumphal entry passage this morning, May we learn from John's theme that's reflected in our triumphal entry today. May we learn to avoid the mistakes of the crowd. And may we be people who grasp the truth of Jesus. May we understand why Jesus came. Why Jesus entered into Jerusalem. He entered into Jerusalem to save us from our sins. And as we look at this passage, it simply divides into four parts. Pretty easy outline today, I think. Four parts of Jesus' triumphal entry that warn us of seeking Jesus, but not grasping the truth of Jesus. The warnness of saying, I follow Jesus, but not believing in Jesus. <clears throat> Technically, 
the triumphal entry passage begins with verses, verse 12. You're going to see that. But I, I want to read and start this passage with verse 9. Because verse 9 provides a background, a backdrop to why Jesus is so popular and why the people were seeking him. And so we see in verse 9, 11, the seeking of Jesus. That many people in that region were seeking Jesus at the time of the triumphal entry. Verse 9, 11, we read, The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, okay, that he was in Bethany. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Verse 9, uh, the, the main emphasis or the main focus on who's doing the action here is this large crowd. In fact, this word crowd is repeated a total of four times in this passage. So this, this emphasis in this passage on the crowd, the throngs of people. Jesus was immensely popular. They had gathered to see Jesus. Jesus' popularity had exploded all because of one miracle. The miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus that we found, that we would see in chapter 11. Now, if you don't know the story of Lazarus, Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, were followers of Jesus. They were disciples of Jesus. And Lazarus one day had grown sick. In fact, sick to the point of death even. So just as many times the sisters, his followers, had seen Jesus heal people, Lazarus' sisters called for Jesus. And they had sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. And they were probably hoping that he would come and then he would lay his hand on Lazarus and heal him. But before Jesus could arrive in Bethany... Lazarus died. And by the time Jesus arrived in Bethany to where the tomb of Lazarus uh, was, four days had already passed. Four days. And, you know, and, and <clears throat> four days for a body in a tomb is, is a significant part of time, amount of time. And by then, uh, there's a significant time for a body to decompose. Uh, it's pretty certain that that person's dead, you know, after four days. In fact, that four four days is going to be is is uh, is emphasized uh, later in the story as well. Because when Jesus goes to the tomb, he says, tells them to remove the, the the stone away from the tomb. In those days, they had stones kind of over the tomb, just like Jesus' uh, resurrection story. They said, no, uh, <clears throat> they said to him, "No, you don't understand. He's been dead four days already. You don't want to open the tomb. He's really dead, and you'll know if you open the tomb." But nevertheless, Jesus told them to obey, and they obeyed. And what is kind of, and at that moment, there, were, there was probably, a, there was a crowd who was gathered along with Mary and Martha. Many were weeping over Lazarus' death. Jesus, what did he do when he, when the tomb was rolled away? Did he raise his hands? Did he lay his hands on Lazarus? Did he, you know, kind of do a dance? Do a, you know, do some, kind of read from some book? Incantation? No. The creator of the universe, just as he has always done in his almighty power, simply spoke. And he spoke, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. You can imagine that scene, you know. Uh, you know for most of us, it's, it's pretty uncomfortable to be around a, a deceased person, uh, even if it's someone you love. It's just a little kind of uncomfortable and... Uh, but you can imagine this body that was uh, had been wrapped, uh, covered now around the face, around the body. You know, when Jesus spoke, and it's four days, you, you expect this, their Lazarus to be completely dead. 
But when at that moment when Jesus spoke, Lazarus in this this body wrapped around, kind of maybe you could picture a mummy like, walking out of the tomb. You saw that, you would never forget that. It was probably just sent, you know, chills up everybody's spine. Just looking at that. It was an astounding demonstration of Jesus' power over life and death. You can't miss the resurrection of Lazarus. It's so powerful. It, just the story of Lazarus' death was, was just growing Jesus' popularity by least amount. He had already done so much. He had healed people. He had fed 5,000. He had cast out demons. But this one kind of brought it over the top. He raised someone from the, de- from the death to life. Someone who had been dead for like four days. And as a result, the word spread like wildfire. And drew the attention of the Pharisees, who were jealous, and they sought to kill Jesus. Jesus, they're, they're, <clears throat> in fact, they put out word. They say, "Tell if anybody knows where Jesus is, let us know, because well, we want to arrest him and have him killed." According to chapter, and so Jesus fled to the wilderness. He went to withdrew to the wilderness where no one could find him. According to chapter eleven, verse fifty-six, though many were seeking for Jesus. And though as many were seeking for Jesus, Jesus would not appear until he was ready. And when we get to chapter 12, verse 1, we find that <clears throat> six days before the Passover, Jesus came back to Judea. And he came back to Bethany, the town where Lazarus and his sisters lived, where they shared a meal together. And the word began to spread. Our passage, essentially, verse 9 11, picks up from this. This is all background. This all explains the popularity of Jesus. And in this, we see then the people seek, coming to seek Jesus, the different kinds of people that were seeking Jesus. And when we look at the three, these three verses, the different kinds of people that were seeking Jesus, we, we notice that p- different people will seek Jesus with a different perception of who he is. They're seeking him for kind of different reasons. First of all, in verse 9, we see that there were those who sought him as a spectacle, as a spectacle. It's just something that was kind of interesting, awesome, pretty astonishing. You want to see it. It's like you see a large crowd gathering. You want to go say, hey, what's going on over there? I want to go take a look too because it's a spectacle. The large crowds came not only to see Jesus, but they also wanted to see Lazarus. They want to see the guy who was dead for four days. They want to see what does he look like after he's been raised from the dead. You know, this is true. This, this would be true even in our days. You know, even in our days... Stories of someone coming back from the dead lead to all sorts of books and movies, right? You want to be a top ten bookseller in New York Times? Die and come back to life and write a book about it, right? Or, you know, and there's the children, you know, or if you don't do it, then your child does and, and write about what they tell you happens. These are, these are things are, that our people are curious about. They're curious about resurrection stories, life after death stories. And Jesus and Lazarus was such a story and it was a spectacle to behold. An interesting and sensational news. And people still seek Jesus in kind of these same ways as a spectacle. People sometimes will go to Billy Graham Crusades, not because they want Jesus, because they say, well, why are, why are 30,000 people gathering in that stadium? What's, what's that all about? I'm going to go check it out. They go for the spectacle. Even in, people go to mega churches, you know, they won't, <clears throat> they go to mega churches these days because in those mega churches, there's like all sorts of, it's, Worship is like a this fabulous production. It's better than going to the movie theater. You know, it's just like videos. We should have videos. Uh, <clears throat> all sorts of things flying around on the screens. The the preacher is real dynamic. He's a, you know he's handsome, 
and all those kinds of things. You just kind of want to go, wow, let's go look at that guy. Uh, anyways, adjust. But church services, uh, church things related to the church have become such a spectacle that people just go for those reasons. And it's easy to miss Jesus even among such, in, in, this, in the midst of all the spectacle. Secondly, in verse 10, we see that there were those who sought Jesus as a sinner. They perceived him as a sinner that needed to be killed. The chief priests and Pharisees had already conspired to kill Jesus. In fact, in chapter 11, verse 53, because he threatened their position's power. And the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the resurrection of Lazarus only kept increasing his popularity and fame. We learn here that they didn't want to just kill Jesus only. They also wanted to kill Lazarus because Lazarus was basically a a living, walking testimony of Jesus' power. And today, still, there are those who see Jesus as a threat, as a sinner, someone to be opposed, mocked, and scorned, uh, those who have faith in Christ because, you know, don't feel bad because basically they mock and scorn you because they feel threatened by the possibility that what if what you believe is true? And it is true. Thirdly, there were those who perceived Jesus as a savior. Verse 11. They saw Jesus because as a, as a savior from sin. Here's the reason why the chief priests were threatened. Because of, there were some who, when many actually, who instead of following them, were now beginning to follow Jesus. They were believing in Jesus. Because the resurrection of Lazarus had caused them to recognize that Jesus has power over death. And what is the cause of death? It's sin. And Jesus has power over sin and death, and they were believing in Jesus. The tense of that, in fact, believing in Jesus, tells us this was a continual kind of faith. This is a, and genuine faith is a continual kind of faith. This is how we shall all view Jesus as a Savior. To see, to make sure that when we come to Jesus, when we seek Jesus, we're not just seeking him to save us from earthly problems, though he can do that. But we come to seek Jesus to save us from our ultimate problem. Our ultimate problem was sin and death. See, the resurrection of Lazarus started a whirlwind of increasing popularity for Jesus. Sadly, this increasing popularity did not translate to knowing and receiving Jesus, as we're going to see in the remainder of our passage. Point number two, or the second part of the passage, the triumphal entry, is the, the waving of palm branches. The crowds begin waving palm branches. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem. On verse 12. On the next day the large crowd who had come to the feast. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Took the branches of the palm trees. There were palm trees lining the streets in those days. And they went out to meet him. And began to shout. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. The next day here is the first day of the week. Sunday. And that's why we call it Palm Sunday. We see that the large crowd had gathered for the national feast of Passover. Three major feasts in the Jewish calendar require that every male of, 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 the Jewish, of, the, of Israel attend Jerusalem for worship. And so they would not only go, sometimes they'd bring their families as well. But they, it is estimated that on this occasion, on the pa- occasion of the Passover, that about two million people had come to Jerusalem from all across Israel. And among them was Jesus. Significantly, of course, in other places we learn that Jesus came to the Passover as the Lamb of God. In God's providence, the Lamb of God entered Jerusalem to die as the ultimate Passover Lamb for the sins of mankind. The crowds won't get this. 
The response of the crowd to Jesus coming to Jerusalem is recorded in verse 13 specifically. What did they do? They took the branches, tree branches, cut off from the palm trees nearby. And palm branches, they would have leaves that were about several feet long. And they went out to meet Jesus. They were probably waving it. And some of the other gospel writers describe how they laid it down along with their garments. But what is the significance of these palm branches? What is, uh, do we see this particular commanded of, of, uh, of the people of God when their Messiah or their King has come? We don't. What did it mean then in Jesus' day? Well, to understand what it means, the sequence of the palm branch, we have to go back to an Old Testament passage to, be, to start. There is a command in the Old Testament, Leviticus 23, verse 40, where palm branches were waved. But it was commanded, it was, it was part of the celebration of the feast, one of the other three major feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, uh, the Feast of Tents, we might even call it, uh, sometimes is what it is. And it was celebrated by the waving of palm branches. They would also probably use those very same palm branches to make tents uh, for which they were to live during that and part of the celebration of the feast. But this Passover is not the Feast of Tabernacles. It's not the Feast of Booths. So did the Israelites kind of confuse the dates? Like, oh, we, oh, I forgot. My bad. Wrong holiday. I thought it was Christmas, but it's Easter. You know, no, they, they knew what day it was. This is not a violation. They, they were not trying to obey Leviticus 23:40. But really, it's just like how, you know, when you celebrate, you're kind of used to celebrating, uh, you know, <clears throat> when you, you kind of learn to celebrate things by going, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, you know, at games. Yeah, and then you come to church and you want to celebrate. What do you do? Yeah, 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 yeah. You just kind of use used to That's how you celebrate. Okay, not us. Okay, but, you know, others. Okay, that's, and that's just, you're just used to a particular concept of celebration. And that's this waving of palm branches for them culturally, according to, from Leviticus 23, was a symbol of rejoicing. And they just brought that in to the times whenever they rejoiced. And this particularly was a time of great rejoicing. But it's not just limited to this. There's a very specific, there's a very specific meaning these palm branches even, uh, particularly in light of the time of this, the time in history for Israel. It had taken on further significance by Jesus' day. And we learn this from two apocryphal books. Now, I'm going to have to backtrack because I'm saying, you with your apocryphal, what is that, isn't that like false, doc, false, uh, you know, books of the Bible? I mean, the New Testament apocryphal books are, yes, for sure. But there are Old Testament apocryphal books that are not scripture, not inspired scripture. They were written during the period of, many of them were, they were mostly, uh, they were written between the, with the period between the New Te- Old Testament and New Testament, this 400 year period. They're written by Jewish people and they were a pretty, you know, fair record of the historical events that took place in those days, at least from the perception, perspective of the Jewish people. So it's kind of like when we read Josephus. And we read Josephus' records of the, the times of Jesus, the times of, of the early uh, of, of, of Israel in those days. And we would understand, oh, that's just a perspective, but it's probably a, an accurate, to the most part, representation of what was taking place. And so from the Maccabees, first and second Maccabees, we learn about a, a development of the use of palm branches, in fact. Um, <clears throat> In those days, Israel was controlled by the Seleucid Empire. I think sometimes they're called, it's called, it was a, it was a large empire that kind of just reigned east to west that controlled uh, Israel as well. Sometimes it's called the Syrians as well. But the Seleucid Empire controlled, and one of the leaders, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, the, f- the fourth, I think. 
uh, it tells us what he, that he basically forbade all other worship. He tried to create a one unified worship in the land, uh, only one kind of religion. And he forbade the Jewish people from practicing their worship of Yahweh. So he basically went in and he turned the temple into a temple of Zeus. He put an idol of Zeus there. He brought in temple prostitutes so that they might worship in accordance to the ways that they worshiped. He sacrificed pigs on the altar of God. And that's, a pig is an unclean animal. He defiled the temple. And you can imagine the Jewish people were pretty incensed about this. Rebellion ensued, and there were various men who led, one particular family, uh, led the rebellion against uh, the, the, the Seleucids. And one man, one leader, his name was Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus, his brother Simon Maccabeus, another man, the father Mattathias. But they led a rebellion against, against uh, the Seleucids. And <clears throat> to tell you the truth, it was really God who delivered them, uh, according to the, just read the stories. It's kind of very interesting historical reading. I was just reading it. Oh, wow, it's kind of neat. But God basically struck uh, Antiochus Epiphanes with a disease that basically just ate him from within. He just, he just he was just dying from within some kind of internal disease, so that eventually he relinquished his his control over Israel, and allowed for Judas Maccabeus and the Israelites to go back in and recover and restore the temple. When can you imagine they were able to then worship again as they as they were desired to worship, and and what we learn from particularly Second Maccabees chapter ten verses six and seven verse six. We find there that there's a specific statement that the people of God then, the Israelites, according to the custom of the Feast of Tabernacles, took palm branches and waved them as a part of their, their celebration as they purified the, the temple. They used palm branches in their celebration. This, of course, this celebration became an annual celebration. It became known as the Feast of Dedication, also the Feast of Lights, which we know today more commonly as Hanukkah. So palm branches, by Jesus' day, were not only associated with just rejoicing in general, but particularly the joy and rejoicing of military victory, of victory, political victory, over their enemies. They remembered the Maccabees. They remembered how they delivered them from the Seleucids. And now Rome was that evil empire that was controlling them. And for the crowds, when they waved their palm branches at the entrance of Jesus into, into, into Jerusalem, they saw Jesus for what they wanted to see. They saw Jesus as their king, the messianic king, yes, but they saw him as a conquering king. They saw him as he's going to come in and he's going to wipe out the Romans and he's going to defeat them and he's going to rule. In their minds, his arrival marked the certainty of victory. And this is reflected in exactly what they cry out. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Hosanna is, if you look in Psalm 118, 25, you have, you look in your English Bibles there, there'll be a phrase that says, save us, we pray, or do save, we beseech you. And that's a, this Hosanna is a transliteration of that phrase. Hosanna or Hosea is means save us, and the addition of na, is an interjection that means we pray, we ask you. So the crowd, when they cried this, Hosanna, they were crying, 
Jesus, or the King, come save us now, we pray. Come save us now, we beseech you. They understood Psalm 118, verse 25, to be a psalm of their Messiah. The Talmud records even that, uh, it's the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, that this was a prediction of the Messiah. And it certainly was. We just read it in our call to worship. You can read that the cornerstone, the one who, the, the stone that the builders rejected was the chief cornerstone. And that's quoted all across the New Testament of Jesus. The crowd would call Jesus to deliver them. They also, <clears throat> they look forward to the deliverance of the Messiah. And the fact that they called him the king of Israel as well affirmed their belief that Jesus was the was coming as their messianic king. You see, they were looking for the king, the Messiah, the son of David, who would establish an eternal throne, who would rule a, a kingdom of, of peace. They thought Jesus was coming to be that conquering king at that very moment. And they were looking for an earthly savior, a conquering king, someone who would give them what they want. And what they wanted was freedom. Not from sin, but freedom from Rome. They were not looking for a spiritual savior, much less a crucified king. By all outward accounts, Jesus was immensely popular. He was popular with all the crowds that were seeking him. He, there were so many crowds seeking him that the, even his enemies who wanted to kill him, who were the political elite, the religious elite, could do nothing against him. But sadly, though he was immensely popular with the crowds, the crowds loved their perception of him rather than the person of who he was. Later on, we find that in John, when their perception turned out to not be reality, their cries for Jesus turned to cries for who? Barabbas, a criminal. The cries of Hosanna became cries of what? Crucify him. Much like today, many people look to Jesus for power. Power because we know Jesus is God and we heard that Jesus is God. We heard that if you ask and you will, you will receive. We heard that he can deliver. And so we think, God, Jesus, I look to Jesus to deliver me from my troubles, my earthly troubles, my sufferings. I will seek to Jesus to give me, deliver me from poverty so that I may have success and prosperity. I will seek Jesus to help because I have difficulties at school or work. I will look for Jesus because I'm ill and I have, I'm sick and I need healing. I'm, I'm weak, and so I need strength to play well in my basketball game or my sports team. I want Jesus to help me in my broken relationships or to help me get a relationship. We see Jesus to be our personal life coach. You know, he's got a lot of wisdom that we can live by and just really guide us in life. And we all forget that Jesus came to be our Savior from sin. Now, Jesus can and may help in many of our earthly matters. He does. But the truth is, the first thing is that Jesus came to save us from our sin. And that is why, and that is the truth that we all need to grasp. First and foremost, you know, <clears throat> it's good to seek Jesus. It's good to seek after Jesus. I hope you're all seeking Jesus. If you're not already a believer in Christ, and if you are a believer in Christ, you keep on seeking Jesus to know him. As we seek Jesus, let us make sure that we understand first and foremost that we are that we should seek him for the very reason that he sought us, that he might save us 
from our sins. And this truth of Jesus, of why he came, was revealed in our third part, or is revealed in the third part of the story, the riding in of a young don- of a young- riding in on a young donkey. Verse 14 to 16, we read that Jesus in this act reveals who he is. So it's peculiar that people would just start waving palm branches. Peculiar even more when Jesus would ride in on a donkey. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him. And that they had done these things to him. See, Jesus' action of riding on a young donkey was a very purposeful act to convey the truth of who he was. He did this in fulfillment of the scriptures. It was to reveal to the world, if they would just, particularly his people, if they would remember the scriptures, they would know what kind of king he was coming, he was coming to be. This quote that we find here in verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king has come, seated on donkey's colt, is a quote from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah was a post-exilic prophet who wrote to encourage Israel to rebuild uh, their worship of God, rebuild the temple. And he did so by reminding them that the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming, so let's rebuild your worship because you're going to be worshiping him. Rebuild the temple, worship him. The full prophecy of Zechariah 9 verse 9 reads this way. And, and Jesus, in fulfilling this prophecy, this, this, this prophecy, this scripture, conveys to us that these were attributes of God. These were to describe who he was to the people. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. You know, the people of Israel, they got this part right. They knew that when the Messiah comes, it's a reason to celebrate. You know, you know we're all going to be lifting our hands when we see Jesus, okay? We're all going to be doing it, I think. We're all going to be bowing down. We're all going to be celebrating because Jesus, when he comes, is worthy of rejoicing, shouting. And just imagine the times when you rejoiced and shouted. I know you were, you were lifting your hands. You were jumping up and down. You were like down on your knees. You were like crying. And all those ways will be reflected when Jesus comes. There's a rejoicing, a shouting that comes. Why? Because your king is coming to you. That's why they should rejoice and shout. And that's what they did. They, were, they, were, they had part of it right. But notice the next part. Of Zechariah 9.9. This is the one who is coming. This is the one who is your king. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Even on a colt. The fall of a donkey. And this is the part that they did not quite get. This is the part that the people of Israel missed. He was not the kind of king that they were thinking. Instead of coming to make war. He came to make peace. You see. In ancient Near East, a conquering king, when he would come to, to come in to, to in war, he would ride in on a horse, a war horse. But if he would come in peace, you want to know if he come in peace, he would ride in on a donkey. And that's what Jesus rides in on, a donkey. Not just a donkey, but the foal of a donkey, the colt of a donkey, the the the, the, the young a young donkey. See, instead of a conquering king. Jesus came as a humble king. He came not to reign, but he came to die for his people. He came to bring salvation from sin. He's endowed with salvation, not from Rome, but from your own sin and death. It wasn't just the large crowds, though, that did not understand who Jesus was. 
Verse 16 is unique in John. All the, all the other writers of the triumphal entry, describing the gospel writers who describe the triumphal entry, don't add this connotation or this, this little nuance. John makes this clear. Not only do the people miss it, but the disciples miss it too. The disciples don't get. They don't understand at first. Why is Jesus riding on a young donkey? What does that mean? Even though it's a fulfillment of scripture. It, wasn't be, it wouldn't be until his resurrection and glorification when the spirit of God came and dwelt, filled, indwelt the believers that they then were led into the truth, guided into the truth, and they understood. It was like light came on in their heads. They said, oh, Jesus did not come to conquer. He came to be crucified. Which is why the apostles' message was consistently that of Christ crucified. Not Christ conquers. See, instead of a conquering king, Jesus came to be a crucified king. And that's why we celebrate when we celebrate this triumphal entry. Jesus, that's what every Israelite should have recognized when he walked in to the gates riding on that young dog. That he was not coming to conquer Rome. He came to conquer sin. He came to conquer death. But he came to be crucified. He came to be the savior of the world. And this is the very first thing to know about Jesus. This is what we need to grasp about Jesus, even as we, the many seek after Jesus. If we look to him for anything else, we must make sure that we look to him first and foremost as our savior from sin. Because when he rode on the donkey, he rode in willingly to die. Although he was creator and deserved the worship of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins. And if you know this, if you've heard this, then I ask, have you grasped this? Do you believe this? You know, it's, our heart is deceitful. That's what the scripture says. And uh, I, by the way, I hope you'll come to our baptism next week. Uh, we're having two of our two of our uh, sisters getting baptized. It's uh, after at our after our Easter service. It'll be at our other building in Funston. You're gonna hear great testimonies. But as I was talking with our sisters, both of them had grown up in the church, and it's amazing how so many people who grew up in the church, you know, would go through the motions of church. And that's just true of all of us who grew up in the church. But it's so easy. To be about Jesus, to be going and doing the things of Jesus, and yet not know Jesus, not be saved, not know. And I praise God that our, uh, that our sisters know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord now. Praise God for that, even though they grew up in the church. And that would be prayer for all our kids, all those of you who've grown up in the church, that you would know that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Don't just know it in the head. Know it here in the heart. Grasp it. Make it your faith. Make it your trust. Make it your hope. And know nothing else for the forgiveness of your sins. One of the last part of this passage, we see the increasing popularity of Jesus. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem with the crowds already were looking for him, made him even more immensely popular. Verse 17 through 19. So the people, and really that word people should be translated crowd. So the crowd who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the crowd went and met him. 
because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Jesus' popularity only increased because of the responses of the crowds. The word people that I translate crowd is the same identical Greek word as found in verse 9 and 12. And so we see the crowds gathering. And it's not just the same crowd, different crowds here. First of all, we see the crowd of witnesses in verse 17. The crowd of witnesses, those who had witnessed Lazarus' resurrection. And they, we turn to learn, they had basically continued to testify about him. They continued to tell others about what Jesus did. That Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It was this news of the resurrection of Lazarus just too great to keep to oneself. They, they couldn't get over the fact that he simply called Lazarus out of the tomb and Lazarus came out raised from the dead. And he simply spoke. Who does that? Only God. Only God speaks things and it happens. Only his word has power. And they were testifying to this. There were crowds of witnesses testifying about Jesus. But sadly, though there were crowds of witnesses testifying of Jesus, many of these same people, when they learned that Jesus was not the conquering king that they looked for, turned away and fell away from Jesus. They cried, crucify him. The spectacle was not the savior, that the kind of savior they were looking for. Secondly, we see the, another crowd gathered. Another crowd they had gathered, the crowd of seekers in verse 18. Now, those who, there was a crowd that went about just telling others about what Jesus did. But there was another crowd that went, went and met him. The implication is that they came out from the city of Jerusalem. These are probably those who had gathered from other places in Israel. We're not eyewitnesses, but they had now heard. They had heard about what Jesus did in raising Lazarus from the dead. And they went out to meet him. They went out to seek him. They were a crowd of seekers. <clears throat> and just the same as the crowd of witnesses, these, among these crowd of seekers, the same thing took place. That when Jesus was not the kind of king that they want, they were looking for, they turned away from him. And they fell away. Jesus would die alone on the cross. Now it's good. I'm not saying that, you know, <clears throat> spectacles aren't used by God. You know, sometimes spectacles are. And there are those who did believe because of the resurrection of Lazarus. There were those who did believe, who went out from the city seeking Jesus. But a good many did not. you are here today and you're seeking Christ. You're seeking Jesus. And I know that you, when you seek Jesus, there's usually a felt need. It's usually some earthly trouble. You're going through marital difficulties. You're going through financial difficulties. You're going through loneliness. You're going through some kind of issue in your life that you are kind of at the end. You're, you're, you're at the end of. You just don't know what to do. And yes, Jesus may provide the answer to some of those things. But as you seek for Jesus, know that you must first understand that Jesus came to 
to save you from your sins. That he is the son of God who died an eternal death for the eternal punishment, for the sins and eternal punishment that you deserve. And he died so that you, through repentance and faith, might have forgiveness of sins, might know peace with God, might have hope of a better life, an eternal life with God the Father, that you might (coughs) be adopted as his children. Will you do that if you are seeking him today? Thirdly, we see in this final verse 19, we see the, the another crowd, a third group. Then the whole world, in a sense, at least according to the Pharisees, went out to seek Jesus. The Pharisees who continually were, were jealous and despised Jesus, they wanted to kill him, but they were frustrated by the crowds. And all they could do was just say, kind of just lift, raise their hands and say, what can we do? The whole world is following him. And though, in a sense, the whole world was following him, but in another sense, the whole world wasn't. They weren't following him. They were seeking him for a kind of king that he was not coming as. Now, ironically, these, even these, uh, these Pharisees saw that the whole world was going after him. They themselves continued to refuse to follow Jesus. Not many of them became followers of Christ. We know how the story ends. The next week, Jesus will, Jesus' immense popularity will be exchanged for immense hatred and scorn. The crowds that once adored and rejoiced at his entry adored a robber and rejoiced at Christ's death. The majority of people fail to grasp the truth of Jesus because when he doesn't deliver them as they expect, they abandon him. Many spoke of Jesus' power who did not grasp his saving power. Many sought Jesus who didn't grasp that he came to seek them. May we not be such kind of people. Here we are on Palm Sunday. And we're going to join along with crowds, not just here, but around the world this week, in celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, many people will say that we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Maybe you'll come across people at work and your, and your families and say, well, I'm celebrating Jesus' resurrection. I'm celebrating Jesus this week. Ask them why. Well, what are you celebrating Jesus' resurrection for? What did he die for? They'll say, he's because he's a savior. Savior from what? Well, savior from my low self-esteem. Savior because he helped me when I was sick. Savior because he, I, was, I was really poor and now I'm rich. Savior because I was, I was real lonely and now I got a wife and kids. Savior from those things? No. Jesus came to be our savior from sin. And let us make sure that we first grasp that. And let us, by the, with loving compassion, make sure that we go out and testify and tell others about this this week. Because there's a lot of people going to be worshiping Jesus. A lot of churches out there in the city and they have their Easter week services. And when you go there, you sadly, for those of you who have gone, will not hear the gospel preached there. 
They are following the crowds. They're seeking Jesus. But sadly, they don't grasp the truth. We who have seen the light, let us make sure that we tell others of this light. For the promise is ours, according to John 1.12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Let us be people who have received him, first and foremost, as the children of God. And let us make sure that we tell others of how they can be children of God through faith in Jesus who died for you and me on the cross and rose from the grave. So what are we going to celebrate this week? Let's celebrate it by testifying of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for these truths. And I pray, Lord, that you would especially do a mighty work in anyone here who is, has been seeking you. And they come through these doors, they've been seeking you for a while, even maybe, or there's a, a crisis in their life that has brought them to this place. And I pray, Father, that, that you would open their eyes, open their ears and hearts, help them, Father, to, to hear exactly what they needed to hear, that they might come for their own, with their own purposes, but instead they came and they got to hear your purpose for them. They got to see, they came to hear, they want to say Jesus to save them from some earthly trouble, but then they came and they heard that Jesus, you sent Jesus to save them from the greatest trouble that they could ever face, and that is an eternal separation from you in hell. Oh Lord, I pray that they would grasp this truth, and that they would realize that the, that the only response, the right response is to acknowledge their sin, just as all of us have sinned. And laws, they are worthy and deserving of only death, but that they would acknowledge that Jesus came to die on the cross for their sins, that they would believe upon Christ, put their trust in Christ, put their hope in Christ, and that by doing so, that they might know Christ. And as you promised, Father, as they receive him, may you give them the right to become your children because they believed in his name and father we who have already believed in his name we who have the assurance to know that jesus came to die on the cross for my sins and and i am a sinner who does and i claim the name of jesus christ father for all of us here who can say that father help us to rejoice in the fact that you have mercifully sent us your son help us to worship christ this week and help us to be faithful to be to continually testify of the wonder of wonders. Not that Jesus raised a man from the dead, but that Jesus came to die for my sins. And that is the greatest miracle of all, Lord. For we deserve none of it. But in your loving kindness and mercy, you did just that. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful Easter week. We'll see you this Friday 